As I noted this morning, um, we were in the Gospel of John, and then I said well, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, so it's Matthew, Mark, second book of the New Testament. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 1, and I'd like to read verses 21 through 28. That is a record and a story among a number of stories in the Bible revolving around what is called demonic uh, possession. And this is a rather uh, fascinating story, and I hope to uh, unpack it with you um, this afternoon. Um, before we read the passage, um, I want to give a personal remark, and then um, I want to draw your attention to, and PowerPoint team, can you, um, rather than putting the uh, scripture passage up, can you put those select questions and answers from the Heidelberg Catechism as part of the PowerPoint? Okay, yeah, just leave it there for now. Um, and I'll draw your attention to that uh, in uh, just a moment. Um, the passage here in these stories about demonic possession in the Bible are, are rather fascinating, and they're somewhat mysterious, I think, to a lot of us. And I don't know if you have ever interacted uh, with individuals who uh, displayed um, either uh, demonic oppression or influence, or um, demonic um, possession. You know, the Bible warns us in the Old Testament, especially against involving ourselves in occultic activity that can open portals to the realm of demons. And the Bible always treats demons as something very, very real. And a lot of people just kind of make fun of today, or they make fun of the devil, you know. But the Bible treats these things very, very seriously. And, and, and before I share with you some select question and answers from one of the confessional documents that we have, the Heidelberg Catechism, that views the devil as very real, and I want to share this quickly with you, and I have to try to make sure that I don't give too much information, because I'll share this with you maybe, you know, in the months or years to come, a little more extensive treatment of this. But um, uh, some of you know, one of my brothers was in the television industry. He was an anchorman, and he was a producer, and he served in a number of stations, and he served at a kind of a a big station, uh, Channel 7, I believe it was, in a place called Boise, Idaho. It's the capital of Idaho. And he um, uh, shared a home with a woman. Now, this was not what we call a common law relationship or anything like that. He was simply, I think he had a basement apartment. And there was a, a woman who had recently divorced. And it was, it was uh, my brother's pretty principled. And so he, just, he was just simply renting from her. But he realized over time that she was manifesting strange behaviors and to make a long story short, um, she started attending uh, worship with my brother, just as this man here is worshiping in the synagogue, this demon-possessed man. And um, this, this uh, woman had been involved in occultic activity, and it appeared that there was certainly some very stark demonic influence that was going on in her life. Her, at one point, actually, there's a, there's a pastor named... Um, Ed Marcusy, who's in the United Reformed Churches right now, was the pastor of that church in Boise at the time. And if you know anything about the URC, and that's a denomination I came from, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty conservative group, okay? And, and uh, Ed started interacting with this woman who started coming to church. And um, again, without going on the details, she would manifest things like her eyes would turn completely black. Um, she would she would speak in deep voices and these kinds of things. They're kind of scary, I suppose, for kids, so I'll kind of spare you the rest of that. But he also noticed things that were going on around the home, like dishes flying off um, 
the kitchen table when no one was there or the, the water heater going on and off unexpectedly, uh, this, this strange things like that. And being that he was a television anchorman and producer, you know, he's, he's a very rational guy and dealt with news items very objectively. And, and uh, anyway, he, he shared these things with me and a lot of people knew about these things. And I asked Ed Marcusy some years after this, I said, Ed, as this woman was going through this all, what, what did you ever make of that? And he said, you know, Phil, he says, I, I still don't know what to make out of it, but it was a very, very odd time. So the reason why I share that with you is not to be sensationalistic, but to just to underscore the fact that the devil is real and the demons are real. We see that in the passage here. And I want to draw your attention to the Heidelberg Catechism, which is one of our confessional documents. It goes back to 1563, so it's about 450 years ago, just to demonstrate that Christians and Orthodox Christians have always taken the devil very seriously. So look at this. Just to give you a quick, I'm going to, I'm going to run through these. I'm not going to make any comments. Uh, just some questions and answers. Why are you called a Christian? Because I'm a member of Christ by faith so that I may fight with a free and a clear conscience against sin and the devil in this life. Question, why do you call him, that is Jesus Lord, because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from our sins and has freed us all from the power of the devil. What is required in the ninth commandment? I must not give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, gossip or slander. Rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works. What is the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come. That is, rule us by your word and spirit. Preserve and increase your church and destroy the works of the devil. A few more. What is the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in and of ourselves, we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, do not cease to attack us. Will you therefore uphold and strengthen us, O Lord? And finally this, what is your only comfort in life and death? Q&A 1, for those of us who are familiar with this document that I'm not my own, but in body and soul, in life and in death, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is fully satisfied for all my sin and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. So it talks about the reality of the devil, the power of the devil, the works of the devil, the tyranny of the devil. Evil is real. And it's what we're called as Christians to fight against and win in the strength of Christ. Let's look at the strength and the power of Christ now in this passage. So if you put the scripture passage back up there, I know you got to go a little bit. There you go. All right. Let's read together. And as they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, that is a demonic spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. 
and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And we'll, we'll end our, our reading at that point. Again, a fascinating story and just one story among many in the Bible regarding demonic possession. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the, the term demonic possession is not even found in the Bible. The, the, the term is demonization. Demonization. And there's different levels of demonization and demonic influence. Perhaps the most deep infestation of demonic spirits is in, I believe it's Mark uh, chapter 5, yes, where we have uh, a healing of a man literally infested with hundreds of demons. He's known as the man of Gadara. It is the most extensive record and story of demonic possession in all of the Bible. The one before us is a bit shorter, but really it is no less startling, I think, for those who maybe are reading their Bibles for the first time and going like, wow, what is, what is this all about? Now, we might ask ourselves the question, um, you know, when, when you read the Gospels, when you read about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, why, why does the Bible spend so much time recording all these miracles of Jesus? And why do we find not just this story, but why do we find a number of stories about demonic possession or demonization in the Bible? And the answer, I think, is really simple. And I think the answer is found in the context. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 1 or go back just to verses 14 and 15. We read these words, again, Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So why do we find all these miracles in the Bible and why do we find the power of Jesus exercised over demonic spirits? And the answer is this. In order to demonstrate that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Son of God, but more than that, to show that Jesus is the King and He has come to bring His kingdom. And when you think of a kingdom, don't think so much as a place, of a place, but as a power. The power of Jesus to break down that which is evil and replace it with good. The power of Jesus to take those who were enslaved and make them free. The power of Jesus to take those who are dead, as we saw this morning, and make them alive. And that's exactly what we see here in this man here, in this story before us. Let's, let's unpack this story. In verse 21, follow along with me if you would. They went into Capernaum, small town, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And verse 22 says, they were astonished, those who heard him, at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So Jesus did what the apostles also did. When they go to a new place, they would enter into the synagogue, the Jewish place of worship, and Jesus would get up as a great rabbi, and he would begin to teach. And those who heard him were astounded by his teaching. Now, why were they astounded by his teaching? Well, they were astounded by Rabbi Jesus in contrast to the other rabbis. They knew that Jesus was different because Jesus taught with authority. Now, the, the scribes and other rabbis, when they would come into the synagogue and they would teach, oftentimes what would happen is they would announce a text, they would say a few things about the text, and then what they would do is they would cite eminent rabbis, other more scholarly rabbis, and they would say, Rabbi so-and-so says this about this passage, and then they would move on in the text and they would say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi, eminent rabbi so-and-so who lived so many years ago said this about the text, and so on. And so it kind of came a running commentary on the text, which, 
while it could be rather informational and you learn a lot, it left people kind of dry, kind of dull, and did not stir their hearts. It'd be like me in preaching and I would announce a text and I really wouldn't preach it, but I would just give a, a basic commentary of this commentator said this and this and this and maybe some of you would like that, maybe some would not, I don't know. What you get is a very informational spirit uh, sermon, but not a very formational sermon. And the people sense something different in Jesus. They sense when he spoke, he spoke in a way that was different from the scribes. He spoke in a compelling way. He spoke in with power, and he spoke with authority. You ever wonder what it would be like to actually have heard Jesus teach and just to feel that, feel that authority? Well, they did. So, so these people were struck by the teaching of Jesus, but as we move on to the story, the individuals who were in the synagogue, the worship of the synagogue, were not only struck by the authority and the power of Jesus' teaching, but so was the demonic realm. And these various demons or these unclean evil spirits that were in this man and we read in verse 23 as we move on in the story, and immediately, so it did not take long for Jesus to speak that it was stirring up these demons within this man. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now, we don't, the text doesn't really say how this happened. Was the man dabbling in a cult while he, even though he was in the synagogue? Was, was he a regular attender at the synagogue and he caught up, got caught up in some things? Were curses placed upon him, like the, the, like the Balaam curse of, of Numbers 22 through 24? We, we, do, we don't know. We don't know. Maybe that's not really important. All we know is that the teaching of Jesus struck this man with these demons within him. And notice the response of the man. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Literally, what us in you? What us in you? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And they say that after the demon says, have you come to destroy us? <clears throat> have you come to destroy us? So we have the difference between heaven and hell here. We have the difference between darkness and light, Christ <clears throat> and Satan and those who serve him. There's, there's, there's something rather interesting if you have the ability on this warm afternoon to kind of stick with me on this, but if you have your Bible or take a look at the overhead, and I want you to take a look at verses 23, 24, and 25. I want to bring out just two things. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and notice, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now, it's kind of interesting, if you pay very close attention to the wording there, it shifts from singular to plural back to singular again. You know, what's going on there? So what happens is this man has an evil, unclean spirit. He begins to speak to Jesus. He's responding to, uh, responding to the authoritative teaching of Jesus. And then this man says, what have, how does he put it? He says, what have you to do? He didn't say, what do you, what do you, what do you have to do with me? He says, what do you have to do with us? So who is he referring to? He's referring to himself, but also the spirit that was in this man. And, and this, this may be a spokes demon person, 
within a, a spokes demon within this person because oftentimes what you will find it is that there's a hierarchy among good angels in the bible there's also the bible implies a very strong hierarchy within the uh within among evil angels or unclean spirits so this man could be infested with more but you have a spokes demon speaking at this point but anyway the point is that this man is not the one who's confronting jesus actually it's the spirit or spirits that are being confronted within this man in connection with the authoritative teaching of Jesus. And then, um, one other thing I want you to notice here, and just stick with me here, in verses 24 and 25, you notice if you take a close look at the, the, uh, the, the way it's rendered in the English Standard Version here, and in most English Bibles, questions are asked. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Question mark. Have you come to destroy us? Question mark. Now, um, in the Greek manuscripts, you will not find, which, uh, upon which our English text is based, um, you will not find punctuation marks. So you will not find periods, you will not find commas, colons, semicolons, exclamation points, question marks, or anything like that. But at any rate, the editors of this Bible, the translators here, have put it in the form of questions. But these could just as well be statements. So it could read like this. And he, and he cried out, what us and you, Jesus of Nazareth, you have come to destroy us. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And when you consider this as statements rather than question marks, the force of this text carries with it, I think, even more power. And he ends by stating, this, this man ends by saying, okay, we know, I know, and the demon within me, and maybe these other demons know exactly who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Hmm. They know Jesus. You know what's kind of interesting? A little bit of a side here to give us a bit of a breather. There's, there's a lot of people um, who come into contact with the Christian faith, who didn't grow up in a Christian church, let's say, and they're, in, they're beginning to interact with it. And they start asking themselves the questions as they read their Bibles. Okay, how do I know when I read this? How do I know it's even true? Or how do I know what the Bible says about Jesus and what Jesus claims about himself is even true? How do I know Jesus is the Messiah? How do I know Jesus is the Son of God? How do I even know that Jesus existed at some point in space and time? How do I even know this? And Christians will come along and they'll work with people like that and sometimes they'll give them very elaborate answers and kind of work with that person to bring them to the point of faith. One thing often Christians will not do when they share their faith with others, when others ask them, well, how do I know that this is actually true? One thing oftentimes we don't bring into the equation, in fact, I've never heard it from any Christian, is, well, we know it's true in part because even the demonic realm confesses they know who Jesus is. Look at this. I know exactly who you are. We know who we're dealing with. You're the Holy One of God. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And by the way, this is not the only time that this happens. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you look after verse 28, I want to read you something. Um, in fact, you know what? Um, I think um, there's a PowerPoint on that. Would you put the PowerPoint up next? No, no, no. Go, uh, go back. Go back, go back, go back. Go back. There you go. All right. Um, no, go forward. Maybe I didn't put it up there. My fault. Okay, just listen up. 
That evening at sunset, they brought to Jesus all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. That's what the Bible says, they knew him. You know, my friends, it's, 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 what, what this teaches us in part, and I want to move on to the story, what teaches us in part is that it's just not enough, though, to know Jesus. It's not just enough for us to understand who Jesus is and read our Bibles and understand Jesus as a historical figure, but the Bible teaches us that we've got to go to the point, as we saw this morning, of actually coming to the end of ourselves and dying to ourselves in order that we might find our life in him. Because let me tell you something about the demonic realm. Oh, they know who Jesus is. And even the book of James says that, oh, you believe that God is one? The demons do as well. And they shudder. The call for us this afternoon is not nearly, merely to know about Jesus or to know of him, but our calling is to embrace what we know to be true about him and commit our lives to him. Something that these demons were really unable and thus unwilling to do. So as we go into the story, though, as we move on, I want you to notice the response of Jesus. Verse 25, because these demons say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, but Jesus responded by rebuking him and saying, be silent, come out of him. Jesus has no toleration for the enslavement that this man is under because of this demonic spirit or demonic spirits. So he says, keep your mouth shut. Be quiet, be silent, and come out of this man. Now, I want you to notice something interesting here, that Jesus speaks to this man, and as we're going to see, I'll get to this in just a moment, he speaks to this man and commands the spirit to come out, and the spirit, when you look at the Bible, the spirits have no other alternative but to obey Jesus, because he is the Holy One of God, because he is the Son of God. So, Jesus, be silent, come out of this man, and all he does is he speaks and as we're going to see in just a moment, this man is healed. But the main thing I want us to see is all he does is speak at this point. He speaks to the demon. Now, what's interesting is that when you move on in the Gospel of Mark, you find other stories like, for instance, you find that there's a, a sickly woman and Jesus takes her by the hand and he helps her up. He heals this woman. And then later on, there's another story after that where Jesus heals a man with leprosy. And what does he do? He touches the man and the man is healed. In both cases, Jesus takes his hands and he places upon these individuals. Jesus does this with blind individuals as well. There's a story where Jesus takes, takes his fingers and, 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 and spits on his fingers and he touches the eyes of these blind individuals and they begin to see. So we have a lot of physical contact with Jesus as shepherd upon those whom he heals. But here, sometimes you find examples in the Bible, and this is one such instance, where Jesus simply speaks to this man and is healed. No touch, no human contact, no elaborate ritual. He just speaks, and this man is healed. What does that teach us? What does it teach us? It teaches us never underestimate the gospel to heal and change and renew. Never underestimate the power of the word of God, either spoken or written. What does the Bible say? I think it's the book of Hebrews. What is it? Uh, Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is sharper and active 
than any two-edged sword. Or what we read the Lord saying in the book of Jeremiah. He says, is not my word like fire and is not my word like a hammer that shatters rock? Do not underestimate the power of the word of God. Why is it, do you suppose, that, that, that Christians, when they, when they work with maybe a friend or somebody that they know who's not a Christian and, then, and, and they're working with this person, they're sharing the faith with this person, why do you suppose it is that in time, many Christians, and maybe you've done this, where, where Christians will say, hey, would you, in time, would you, would you want to come to a worship service sometime? Why do you suppose they say that? Because they want their friend or their worker, whoever it is, to come under the influence of the spoken word, come under the influence of the gospel, because the gospel is able to break us down and cause us to, as we saw again this morning, die to ourselves in order that we might come to life. Why do we need to take people that we know and bring them into the context of the church, bring them into the context of pathway, so that they may hear the word preached, so that they may hear the word taught, so that they may hear the word sung when we sing together? Why is it that we're called to, when people are beginning to become interested in the Word, even go so far as to buy them a Bible and say, here, start reading this. You know why? Because when people start reading this slowly, bit by bit, when the Lord works His grace in their life and His Spirit, the Spirit combines with these words and begins to transform their hearts, and He, he, he makes these hearts of stone into soft hearts of flesh. Never underestimate this. Never underestimate it. So Jesus speaks to this man. But the man in our story is not set free yet without a certain measure of resistance. We move on to the passage. I want to start drawing to a close here. And the unclean spirit, after Jesus commands him, convulses the man. The man convulses. Reads like this, verse 26. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Everybody around is all, they're all amazed so that they question among themselves, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Hmm. I want you to notice something. You know, sometimes we may give the people the impression that when they come under the influence of the gospel, and when they come under the, under the influence of Jesus himself and the teachings of Jesus, sometimes Christians can give people the impression that, you know what, once you do this, then joy enters into your life, and your life changes, and, and that's really true. But sometimes they give the impression like, everything's going to go your way now, you know? Those financial difficulties that you had, you know, the Lord's going to deal with those. The struggles that you had, you know, those addictions or idols you had in your life, you know, those are going to be broken and everything's going to be fine, you know. And that's not necessarily true. Transformation, a fundamental transformation takes place, but doesn't mean that we don't continue to struggle. And it doesn't mean that when a person comes to Christ, it's just a smooth ride in and everything's fine. You know what oftentimes happens? And maybe some of you can testify to this, and some of us can't. Oftentimes, when you grew up in a Christian family and with a Christian upbringing, what a beautiful privilege that is. And so you look back on your life, and you're sitting there now, and you go, I never knew a day when I didn't know Jesus. A lot of, a lot of Christians experience that. That's the way it's supposed to go. We call that covenant succession. And the passing on of the faith from generation to generation so that we might come to Christ in that way, in a very natural and gradual and quiet and beautiful way. But some people, when they didn't grow up in that context, and they grew up in a spiritually dysfunctional context, what happens to them then is that when they come under the grip of Christ, sometimes it's not gradual and quiet. 
Sometimes it is, but many times not. You know what happens? It's extremely painful, cathartic, difficult. That dying to self, as we saw this morning, it can be an extremely painful thing. Look at this man. When Jesus commanded that demon to come out, what happens with that? What, what happens to that man? The demon screams because he's under the authority of Jesus Christ. But what happens to this man? He falls on the ground and he begins to convulse. Kids, you know what convulse means? Probably not. When a person convulses, it means he falls on the ground and he writhes. He's going like this. And, and sometimes his, 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 he, 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 um, he foams at the mouth. Sometimes he can throw up in these kinds of things. It's an awful, awful thing. So that when evil left this man, this is what this man experienced. And sometimes it is with people who come to Christ. It is a very, very painful thing. Let me give you just one example. I've told this story before, and maybe I've even quoted this, but um, uh, it revolves around a woman, I'm not going to go into details here, who lived um, a life of, of deep-seated same-sex attraction, involved herself uh, very deeply in this. But at one point, the Lord came into her life, and he began to change her, and, and the Lord worked his grace and spirit in her life. And the process in coming to Christ, she said, was an extremely painful one. Would you put the PowerPoint up there, please? Keep going, please. There you go, Rosaria Butterfield. This is what she wrote. She said, the word conversion is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face to face with the living God. I know of only one word to describe the time-released encounter, and that is impact. Impact, I believe, is the space between a multiple car crash and the body count. This is, this is just her story. There are many people who have stories of various things that they're dealing with. But she, notice how she describes her transition to Christ. It was like this man here. It's like she describes it this. Impact. This was not gradual. This was not beautiful like waking up from, from you know, a bad dream. It was like a car crash. It was an impact. But when Christ impacts a person's life, it may be painful. But the end, overall, is nothing but pleasurable. It's freedom. Look at this man. He was once enslaved, now he's free. He once was dead, now he's alive. And so what happens when Jesus impacts a person's life? So, my friends, isn't this what many of us have experienced as well? I, I think a lot of us would say, you know what, I, I, I'm thankful I'm in Christ. And you know what? Um, my life is not perfect. Not everything has fallen into place. But you know what? He, he is at work, and, and the powers of evil have been broken in my life, and for that, I'm fundamentally grateful. I'm grateful. Thank you, Lord. But maybe some of us here are not free, and maybe some of us are in a, a certain form of, and you know yourself better than anybody else here, you're in a form of bondage. What, what is described by one old hymn that we're going to sing in just a moment uh, and can it be where the hymn describes those who are caught in human nature's night that is bound by sin and bound by the chains of destructive habits that are extremely, extremely hard to let go. Well, listen, if even demons bend their wills to Jesus, albeit with pain, should we not also bend our wills to Jesus? 
And if this man has been set free from the realm of evil and enslavement and self-destruction by the power of Jesus, well, can he do that for any one of us here? Are we going to doubt that power and that ability and even that desire? If Jesus is able to do this, then let us collectively come to Jesus and collectively find our freedom in Jesus and collectively find our rest in Jesus so that each and every one of us in our own personal way, might be able to say, and many of you are going to be familiar with these words, I am not my own, but now I belong to Jesus, body and soul, in life and in death. And it's this Jesus who is fully satisfied for my sins and who has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And praise God for that. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the story of grace and the power of your kingdom. Lord, we admit this afternoon, we are not full of power. Oftentimes, Lord, we are weak and we are powerless and we cannot even hold our own, even for a moment, apart from your grace. And so, Father, whatever place we find ourselves here this afternoon, whether we are caught in deep-seated sins or habits that we know are destructive, or Lord, if by your grace we have been set free and life is good with small struggles here and there, Father, whatever we face, whether large struggles or small, whether destructive habits or whatever we are facing, oh God, we pray as we always pray, grant your grace to us and confirm to us that when we die to ourselves and we repent and we entrust ourselves to Christ and seek to follow him, oh Lord, that's all because of your grace and you bless that and we pray that you will continue to bless that, oh Lord. So grant us that, Lord, here at Pathway and in our individual lives. So Lord, this is what we bring before you this afternoon. Thank you for this day. Thank you for our morning service. Thank you for this service now and Grant a, a good, restful day, the rest of this day, as we contemplate not only these worship services and maybe even the sermons this day, but as we think more deeply about your goodness and grace to us in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.